Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast, brought to you by Revision Path, a showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. I'm Maurice Cherry, and this week I talk with designer and illustrator Maurice Wingfield. Now, Maurice contacted me through Facebook, and we had a really great, great conversation on design, diversity in the tech and design fields and conferences, technology in Africa. It really uh, runs the gamut of topics from A to Z. You'll definitely want to grab a cup of coffee and soak this one in, so I hope you enjoy it. Today I am talking with Maurice Wingfield from one Maurice to another. Hello. Hello, Maurice. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. All right. So just tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, what you do. Uh, well, I'm a um, kind of a hybrid uh, techie creative type. So um, I got a, a big background in illustration, uh, animation, and graphic design. And then um, on the other side, sort of complementary wise, uh, web design. Uh, programming and uh, more technical um, skill sets. Um, so I kind of just uh, do projects that incorporate both of those skill sets, you know, the things that I find interesting. Okay. Yeah, you're doing work now through through Tiny Giant Studios, is that right? Uh, correct, yeah. It's a company I joined in uh, early 2012, about February, mm-hmm. when it was, uh, it was about four months old, uh, an animation company based in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Okay. So you're doing animation work for them? You're doing web work? Just kind of a little bit of everything? Well, it was such a, a tiny company. And again, it was only a few months old uh-huh. uh, when I joined. Um, <clears throat> so I just started contributing and adding value wherever I could, which uh, ended up being early on uh, setting up a website, getting some internal uh, studio processes together, doing contracts, things like that, You know, creating some infrastructure. Um, and then later, you're getting into project management and uh, you know production on animation projects. Okay, nice, nice. Uh, you said that you uh, sort of have an art background. Did you go to school for art, or you kind of just self-taught? Self-taught with a, a, a sprinkling of higher education in there. Okay. Um, I did most recently. I did a year at the Cleveland Institute of Art, which was pretty transformative. Uh, even though I was, you know, much much older than my classmates, uh, but it was it was a uh, it was another sort of level to what I uh, had experienced before. Before that, uh, our local community college here in Cleveland, and uh, it's just been something I've been into since I was, you know, three or four. I've been into art, so. Okay, so you kind of had a, I guess, a creative childhood then too. Yeah, my parents were into, um, like, my mother was into pottery when I was really young, uh, so she built up a, a ceramic studio in in our basement. So I just had that, you know, had that as a backdrop, and my father was uh, an engineer, but. He, he was, uh, you know, an illustrator, sort of his passion was illustration, uh, even though he never did it commercially. He was, uh, in my opinion, he was like my, my favorite artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he influenced me there to start drawing. How does your, your and I, this is probably an, an obvious question, but how does your, your art sort of feed into what you do with, with web design? Well, the evolution of web design over the last uh, eight or nine years, uh, it, it's gotten more inclusive. You can say you're a web designer, but the experience that you have as a freelance designer is going to incorporate a lot of the the back end technical aspects, okay, uh, as well as coding and implementation of a design that you made. So a- as that spread continues, it's gotten into marketing, branding, positioning, and so it, it's almost perfectly complementary to uh, to being an artist, to actually creating art, because the the web is a content driven platform now. So mm-hmm. not only do I I sort of have the abilities to create content in some form. I understand its position, its its usefulness 
in the greater marketplace. Um, so how to distribute it and how to um, use it to, you know, in my in my experience, to further the business goals of an organization, you know, so it's marketing, commercials, advertising, things like that. Mm-hmm. How, uh, and I guess it's probably good also because you're an illustrator, you can, I, I see now that one of these sort of design trends is towards doing a lot more hand-drawn type illustrations and things like that. So I would imagine it helps that you can create your art and then also you're able to design it and code it and, and put it up. You're sort of like a one-man machine with that. To an extent, yeah. Um, it's actually not a trend that I'm I'm familiar with. I, I was um, <clears throat> kind of disappointed when I when I spent a year at CIA. The reputation is, uh, you know, still very uh, very influential. Um, however, I think the focus on hand drawing skills and and you know hand rendered art is is actually on the decline from my experience. So it's kind of encouraging to hear that you, you you know communicate that as a trend that's growing. Oh yeah, uh, I I'd say you know it kind of depends on on the circles that you you market to like so so for example there's a big trend right now in design for these uh i call them single serving sites for weddings so what you'll have is is people get married and they want or they'll get engaged of course and then they want to have sort of a a branding around the engagement leading to the wedding which will include like a website and invitations design like a single serving website with a registry and all that sort of stuff a logo you know all that sort of stuff and you know depending on the couple you can sort of tweak whatever the style is but i've I've seen now a lot of that with a lot of sort of hand-drawn almost folksy type elements Mm -hmm. and things so it's something that if you're thinking about it something to look into i know i've seen a lot of that lately well definitely i I, um maybe maybe the ideas that have been kicking around my head in the last you know two years one of them was um something I began to put into place. It's really just a series of uh, persistent web marketing campaigns to sort of create business for illustrators. Um, so it's sort of something like that. We, we've created a couple of different packages, mm-hmm. uh, like a resume, an online resume that's uh, illustrated. It's a cartoon. It's got, you know, uh, a simple web interface um, comparable to a registry, you know, mm-hmm. so, so you can actually track um, inquiries. Uh, but it, it's sort of like a, it's a fancy sort of modern web friendly way to sell old fashioned, you know, uh, turn of the century arts like, you know, illustration. Uh-huh. Do you have a name for that yet? Or is this just something you, you're kind of kicking around right now? Well, the first experiment um, is online at cartoonmyresume.com. So that's, okay. uh, again, it's an experiment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, still learning. I would check out, uh, or I'd invite you to check out two sites that will probably give you uh, some ideas and how you want to market it. One mm-hmm. of them is Creative Market, which is just creativemarket.com. Uh, any designer or, or, or artisan, I think, that has that does stuff to put on the web can create their own shop, and then you can sort of sell these types of things. They're sort of like sort of like a theme store, but they have like themes and graphics and fonts and other sorts of elements that you can use. So that's one thing. Uh, the yeah. other site is Microlancer, like micro plus freelancer, just microlancer.com. And they are a uh, kind of like a micro transaction site similar to Elance or Odesk, but only for creative work. So you can uh, apply for a shop. You can choose the services that you want to do. And there's like illustration, 3D design, web design, print design, etc. You basically describe yourself, describe what you need to start, pick a price. And then people can uh, purchase that like directly from your shop. So like you have the cartoon, my resume type thing. 
you can offer that as a service and then have people give you their resume. You go through X number of revisions and then they pay you. The money's held in escrow for a while. I think it's like for 28 days or so. They hold the money in escrow and then they pay you out. Microlancer pays you out. So uh, those are two things to, to think about just to sort of see what the market looks like. Because I think that something like that is uh, is a pretty interesting I don't think I've seen something like that. You should think about that. I've seen a lot of things like where artists do uh, caricatures and they do uh, commissions and things like that. I see that a lot Mm -hmm. for web conferences. Web conferences and uh, they'll have all the speakers, but then instead of their pictures, they'll have these sort of cartoon caricatures. Um, I've seen that a lot. That's cool. So that's might be something to think about. So just to sort of go back to the interview, I don't want to dominate it with <laughs> with me talking about stuff. But how do you uh, keep motivated and inspired with, with what you do? Um, definitely a big a big concern, um, especially as you mentioned, being more of a one man shop. Um, <clears throat> I find that you you always need an ecosystem to be a part of. Um, and since you know the beginning of 2012, uh, I've been a part of an ecosystem. Uh, called the Shaker Launch House. It's a, uh, a startup them- themselves, but they are a uh, seed funding and a uh, incubator company. Um, they have twice a year, they have a uh, accelerator where they'll do investments in companies and give them some you know, training and structure to bring products to market. So um, it's not specifically a community of artists. However, uh, it is an eclectic group of people and you know every type of person person in business and product and idea comes through the door. So it's really important to be a part of, of that. Every week it's a different, you know, a different set of projects. Um, there's also uh, a a few sort of connectors uh, where I come from, you know, where, I, where I'm based right now. Uh, mm-hmm. People who make it their their business, their responsibility to connect people um, that have complementary skill sets and interests and who, who might actually, um, uh, if not strike up a friend friendship um come together for some sort of a project um so it's really just important to be involved with as many different circles of people as possible i find uh that being said it is also very important to take a break and and step back from you know the grind so Uh i think what is the the creative and design community like in 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 cleveland because it sounds like from what you're telling me it's it's pretty vibrant with uh with the the company that you just mentioned well i think one of the trends that I've been following is the rise of design in startups. Mm-hmm. And so I think everybody can agree that job creation now and in the future looks like the startup movement. Um, and I think it's, it's also, it's also, you know, inspiring that the role of design in startups and products is, is gaining more and more notoriety. So uh, we're sort of just riding that wave. We're riding the ra- wave of, the money being invested from the federal and state level, um, the angel uh, community actually investing in businesses. And each of these businesses and each of these products, they need to have a, a presence, a unique identity. Um, the products themselves need to be designed with the user in mind. So there, there's so many different opportunities for uh, for designers to contribute. Um, I mentioned Cleveland Institute of Art. It, it's actually... Um, on the whole, I had positive experiences there. Uh, their faculty is is you know top notch, mm-hmm. and they're, they're starting again. These institutions are kind of slow moving, but they're starting to Im- embody the entrepreneurial movement. You know, so they're they're doing more more projects and classes for students to help them be prepared for. Okay, you're an individual. You have to plan your own career. You have to find your own projects. You, you know, it, it could be scary, but you know they're starting to prepare students for that. So. I would think um, 
uh, you know, trade organizations like uh, Cozy, well, not necessarily a trade organization, but uh, it, it's more like a um, chamber of commerce almost. Um, and they promote uh, the different communities in their entrepreneurial community as a whole. So we, we became a part of the, uh, the art, art network within Cozy. Which is the Council on Small Enterprises? Um, they have they have a series of events year-round that connects these open studios, these collaborative uh, studios and work environments. And you know, once you tap into some of these uh, these sort of nodes on the network, you really have access to tons of uh, of resources. You know, people, ideas, uh, even capital. So I, I think. Um, to a greater extent, there's there's more and more capital being invested specifically in Cleveland um, and, and Northeast Ohio and the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it's sort of a, a new kind of trickle down. You know, all the money being invested in startups is actually helping the design community as well. It's nice. When I think of the design community in Cleveland, uh, I think of Go Media. Are you familiar with them? Yes. Uh, and I know that they do uh, a an annual conference called the Weapons of, of Mass Creation Fest, right. which I really want to go to. I don't know if I'm going to be able to go this year. I really want to go because I feel like in terms of uh, sort of hybrid conferences of music and technology, I feel like that Weapons of Mass Creation Fest could be the next South by Southwest because South by Southwest right now has gotten has grown into this unruly monster. <laughs> uh, but I yeah. feel like in terms of, of the talent and music and art and design and everything that that that's sort of the next the next uh, level. Have you been to uh, Weapons of Mass Creation Fest? I haven't. Hopefully, this will be my first year going. Um, oh, this is your it, first year going? Yeah, I've never been. Uh, oh, nice. It's, it's very uh, very inspiring. It, it's you know they've decided that you know they they acknowledge South by and they participate in South by. You know, it's really important, but every region has their own value you know valuable assets uh-huh. and. They've decided to put a stake in the ground and say this is uh, a celebration of the creativity of our region, and they're attracting so much attention and so much participation. You know, it's encouraging. You know, you want to stay here and uh, participate and and strengthen the things that are are nascent and growing in your region and community more so than you know transplanting yourself and your skills and your talent and your knowledge outside to the coasts. So I'm really really happy about that. Yeah, they've they've got a great speaker lineup i was looking at it uh the other day and i was like man i really hope i can make it i really want to go just because of the speakers i know they've got uh john contino is going to be there who's an illustrator uh christy tillman who works out of detroit for ido alonzo phoenix out of brooklyn uh kern and burn these are things john jennings i know you said you do illustration you should if you can get a chance to talk to john jennings okay. talk to him he's uh he did this book. Oh, what's the name of the book? Uh, it's about black comic books. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. It's uh, uh, The Souls of Black Comics. Uh, yeah, because I have the book. The Souls of Black Comics is the name nice. of the book. Uh, and he sort of talks about kind of the new generation of, of uh, sort of black comic books and also sort of looking back at, you know, origins of how it started, the whole black age of comics, uh, which is something that I'm personally interested in. But uh, oh, yeah. if you can get a chance to talk to him, I think he, I forget which day he's speaking, but should definitely try to reach out to that brother. Yeah, that'd be absolutely. great. Thank you. No problem. Um, so who are some of your your uh, influences? Have you had any mentors that have kind of helped you along the way? I know you mentioned your father was sort of a a, a big inspiration to you in terms of your art. Wow. Uh, let's see, mentors. I don't know. The um, 
the the first sort of art that I was really into was illustration and comics. Um, I didn't really read comics when I was a kid, but I, you know, I just looked at the pictures. My brothers collected comics. I just looked at pictures. But um, it was around 2007 that I, I, I saw uh, Paul Pope for the first time, his work. Mm-hmm. And um, that was really, really impressive. Um, and and I was impressionable. I was still impressionable, so it, it really did impress me. Uh, he was able to... I don't know. It was it was a sort of like a, an aha moment, sort of like a just a moment of inspiration where uh, a lot of the ways I thought about art and illustration changed very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a very rigid, very structured you know, illustrator. And so um, the work I did was very time consuming. It took, took sometimes months to finish you know, pictures just because, you know, they had to be photorealistic and they had to be, you know, it was almost like a, a classical uh, classical painting style, you know, but Paul Pope really um, showed this sort of this life that can be in, in, imbued in, in a work of art, you know, illustration that still had this kinetic energy that was really energetic and it really was emotionally expressive. Um, and that pretty much, I was obsessed with his work for probably about a year and a half since then. Um, and as far as people that I've, I've known personally, uh, when I was at CIA, there was a teacher in the foundation course. Uh, there is, he's still, he's still there, uh, Richard Fiorelli. Um, a real inspiration, a real inspiration for me uh, in that he, he was a teacher in 2D and 3D design in the conceptual traditional sense, mm-hmm. not, not in computer-aided digital sense. It was about what makes design in two dimensions and what makes design in three dimensions. So we would do exercises on material studies and I find that it informed my artistic process and my my creative thinking to an extent that I've never experienced before. And and even though you know even though I was older than than most of the, my classmates, most of the other students, I still felt that I was kind of unformed as an artist. And he really did encourage me to trust the the voice that was guiding me in you know doing what I was doing. So that was um, that was the biggest influence and and just like the, the greatest thing about going to that school. Nice. It's funny because I know I've, I've interviewed uh, other people before and we've sort of talked a little bit about how, because, uh, you know, some designers tend to be sort of self-taught and then there are some that actually go to, to colleges that may have a curriculum that will sort of help them along the way. So it's always interesting to see sort of the, the dynamic uh, between that, because some will say that, you know, they, you go to art school and you just leave with debt. Like it'll get you prepared in terms of, of the foundation, but then you have to sort of get the jobs in order to pay off the debt. Whereas the people that are self-taught, uh, I've talked to some that feel like they should have had that, that education. They should have had some sort of a, a primer or something because, you know, things in our industry change so quickly. By the time you really get used to one way of doing something, it's, you know, the biggest shift I can think of probably uh, within the past 10 years, of course, has been from table design websites to CSS design websites. And, you know, some people had to be dragged kicking and screaming, <laughs> kicking and screaming exactly. into that uh into this and then there are still some designers i know that make a ton of money that do these huge unwieldy table designs in dreamweaver i don't know how they do it uh with a clear conscience at least but uh, <laughs> but it's it's uh it's just interesting to sort of see that that uh that that mix so do you do any uh are, you, are there any projects that you're working on outside of tiny giant studio like any personal stuff you're working on um, de- definitely all the time. I think, um, I, I, to a 
greater extent every day, I'm, I'm coming to understand that the most productive and efficient ways for me to work. And um, right now, it seems that if I have, you know, a row of buckets to represent projects or, or collections of, of related ideas, and I can just toss ideas into those buckets, uh, eventually, I can, um, eventually, something jumps out at me, and it'll be a project that I want to move forward with. Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of the work I'm doing right now is in, it's in technology, but it's in technology that facilitates, you know, community communication and things like that. I got you. How do you sort of juggle all that? How do you juggle kind of the, the, the full-time work with Tiny Giant with, with handling uh, your personal projects? Well, a part of the, uh, the great experience I had working in sort of entrepreneurial environment is that you constantly have to be switching from one sort of mental focus or mindset to another. And that may mean one moment I'm working for Tiny Giant, the next minute I'm working as a freelancer, the next moment I'm working as an individual, the next moment I'm just, you know, brainstorming some thousand year idea, or, you know, or the, the fact that any number of partners are going to be involved in any of those projects. So whether it's answering emails or phone calls or, or just, you know, people knocking on the door, you have to constantly be able to switch between one and the other. Now it does get difficult and I, I'm definitely in, in need of a vacation right now, just cause I, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> you know, you get, you get lost in, in all the process and you forget like, okay, I'm going to need to sleep for three days, but, right. but it, it's, it's definitely, it's a challenge, but I'm kind of that personality where I'm, I'm kind of always moving and always doing something. So uh-huh. it, it seems that I've, I've I've gotten some help to develop a process that can harness that. Yeah, the process is definitely I feel important uh, because it's it can be so easy to get uh, I don't want to say stuck. It can be so easy to get so engrossed in one thing that you're doing that you can neglect other other tasks and other projects. So it's it's always good to have that that process. Would you say that you're satisfied creatively? Uh, no, no, definitely not. If by satisfied you mean that I can. I can see myself doing exactly exactly this this level of output for the you know next five years and be satisfied with that now. Uh, where would where do you see yourself in the next five years? Well, I, I definitely need a team. I think the the ideas get more and more ambitious um, for me personally. Once I have a skill set or once I can do this this skill over here, I want to see how it works on a larger project with this skill set over here and with these ideas over here and. The ideas that I have that I want to execute are far far too big for me to execute by myself. So I'm I'm in the process very slowly of building a team because it's not something I've ever done before, mm-hmm. and trying to get advice and guidance on how to do that. Um, but I, I think if I can successfully build a creative company, you know, uh, an agency of some kind, that, that that would actually free me up to pursue the ideas and the projects that I want, as long as you know they're supported by a business model that can generate the revenue I need to keep going and you know build the team, et cetera. So that that's kind of what I'm working on. And you say you've you've already sort of like been putting those wheels in motion, right? Yeah. How's that been going so far? Um <clears throat> I'd say so far so far there's evidence that it's having an effect. Um it's easy to get discouraged and it's also easy to get um overly you know, excited about what's going on. It's 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 difficult, but it's really important to just stay focused and, and maintain the same uh, same pace. But um, we have been able to get a um, a uh, I'm sorry, an intern for the animation company who's interested, and and actually a talented illustrator herself, um, interested in learning the the skills and the technologies um, that that we use to make what we what we make. So it's a um, it's sort of a win-win for for her and myself. Uh-huh. Uh, 
I include her on all the conversations with clients. She's completely aware of, you know, I'm totally transparent. So she's aware of the process of courting a client, negotiating price, creating contracts, uh, providing feedback during the projects, doing project management, you know, so, um, and, and then the production aspect of things. So it, it's really been educational for me to, to come up with a roadmap or a um, sort of like a handbook that the next two interns will actually have an easier time because we'll actually have some documentation in place to say, okay, here's our process. Here's step one, here's step two, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now there's, there's one uh, organization you're involved with that I want to, I definitely want to talk about because I'm, I'm really interested in it and it's called the Organization of Black Designers. Right. Uh, can you tell me some more about that? I mean, I think it's it should be obvious just based off the name, but <laughs> for anyone that's listening that might be thinking, okay, what the hell is that? Can you sort of uh, tell us a little bit about the Organization of Black Designers? Well, yeah. So I was really excited to hear about them as well, <laughs> especially because, um, you know, the, the school I went to is predominantly white. Uh, you know, definitely all the faculty that I had exposure to were, were white. Mm-hmm. The... Um, you know, I go to I go to meetups for programmers, and I'm the only black guy there. You know, if you're into some of the things I'm into, technologically or or even creatively, you'll get used to being one of very few African Americans or blacks around. And yeah. so, yeah, I know. You know, you can totally understand. I'm sure. I totally, totally. <laughs> so it's inspiring. You know, you you find an organization that has a, a mission around you. This is an organization that wants to support you as a black creative. And it's, you know, it's exciting. I'm the kind of person that, that I'm all in once I'm sold, I'm, I'm all in. So, you know, I volunteered, um, early on, you know, this was, um, sort of mid to late 2012, uh, to just do whatever I possibly could to help out. They are based in Washington, DC, mm-hmm. and, uh, they've been around for quite a while. However, with, uh, the, the economic collapse in 2008 and, and, 9/11. A lot, a lot of things have actually changed what these nonprofits are, are able to do and sort of how they have to be structured today. So when I when I was uh, brought into the organization, they were in the midst of that kind of restructuring, and so um, it, it's just an ongoing process that that's been underway. But I think I think it's you know on the resurgence. The uh, the organization was started by David Rice, uh, who's an industrial designer. Uh, if you Google him, you'll you'll find tons of information on him and what he's done in his career. Uh, specifically, the the person that told me about it and brought me in was Jacinda Walker, who's um, actually I told her if she if if I wrote a biography of myself, she'd have a whole chapter. You know, <laughs> <laughs> she's um, she's one of those connectors I told you about. She's the kind of person who um, you know she she does the meet and greet for every black designer she comes in contact with, every every creative that she comes in contact with, and she can suggest relationships. So this was one of those relationships uh, she suggested to me. Um, and all in all, it's been, it's been a lot, a lot of learning for, for me. That's for sure. Nice. So let's, I, I definitely want to touch on, on a couple of things you mentioned, cause I think that it's just important, uh, for us as black creatives to be able to talk about this in a space that is, uh, that is, uh, I don't want to say free from criticism, but certainly free from, uh, crap. I don't know how I want to put this. Okay, so you know when there are talks in in the design and the tech industry regarding diversity in the field, uh, there's there's always you know it seems to be to me a, a perennial conversation. It's one of the reasons I started Revision Path. It's something that had been on my mind uh, for years. I I would say almost for ten years. This sort of uh, notion that 
every every year they'd say, oh yes, we need to you know bring in more diversity, and it was always paying lip service to the idea without actually kind of putting in the work. And uh, okay. it, it seemed to mostly spring up around speaker panels at conferences because people would say, oh you know <laughs> we go to these conferences and it is uh it's as as Chris Messina put it in a in an entry back in 2006 I believe he called it uh the white boys club. You know, you'd go to these conferences or you'd look at these conference websites and it's all white men. Uh, what can we do to bring in, you know, more minority voices to the table? But then whenever that conversation happens, there are people saying, oh, this is reverse racism. This is a quota system. If you bring in minorities, the quality is going to be lesser, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I definitely think that in terms of gender diversity, this conversation is still going on, but it's shifting. I'm definitely seeing more you know panels and more participation by women in the field uh but when it comes to talking about race it's just such a, a touchy like super touchy subject around white people because if you yeah. mention it they you know it's i don't know what it is that you mention it and it's it's just gonna start like a shit storm the, the latest uh kerfuffle that i can think of happened oh crap when was this maybe a little bit last year like late last year with Andy Rutledge, who's a, a famed designer, but he created this okay. website called Conference Quotas, I believe is what it's called. I'll I have a link to it in the show notes, but uh, okay. it was supposed to be a satirical website that he put together for conferences that are trying to diversify their speaker and their attendee ranks by bringing in women and bringing in minorities and bringing in you know members of the LGBT community. Um, right. But the satire, I mean, was just like whew, like way off. Uh, and people criticized him about it and he didn't really care about it because he's like, well, you know, I'm, this is me poking fun at it, but it wasn't funny. It was just stupid. Uh, have you, are, are there many tech conferences that you've been to where I know you mentioned like you've been to meetups and things where you've been like the only black guy, but have you found that to be the case at conferences as well? Um, I haven't gone to any tech conferences, unfortunately. I am a, um, a student of them and I consume all of the content that they produce, but, uh, I haven't gone to any. Okay, uh, and you uh, it will. Uh, I know you mentioned Weapons of Mass Creation Fest. Is that will that be your first that you go to? Yeah, that'll be the first design conference, um, sort of design tech conference I've gone to. Okay. Oh, I, I, well, I guess the correct the I'm sorry the um I guess the first conference conference I went to was uh, the the OBD conference uh, last year in Cincinnati. Um, oh, how was that? That was pretty incredible. That was incredible. I I was uh, um I was blown away. You know, Cincinnati is Procter and Gamble town basically, so um. They had a very uh, big presence there. Uh, in fact, uh, one of their executives, uh, the chief creative officer of the company, um, gave a presentation there on their Winter Olympics campaign. It was just inspirational. Uh-huh. And what was the name of the conference? Is it Design Nation? Uh, Design Nation is the series. Yeah, this was the eighth, uh, the eighth in that series. Nice. And are they going to have one this year too? Um, I believe this year the beginnings, uh, the beginning stage is to have a series of smaller events uh, around the region, uh, and so the first of those uh, will be uh, the 18th of July, 2013. Okay, but they're trying to sort of branch out and do things nationwide, not just in. Because you said they're they're based out of DC. Right. Right. But this event that you're talking about is going to be in Cleveland. Cleveland, correct. Okay. Okay. All right. I, I mean, I would definitely, I think if, uh, if, if, uh, events like that, particularly move to these centers where I think I see a lot of quote unquote blacks in tech activity, like Atlanta, uh, New York, I see a lot. Uh, there's some in Texas as well, like Austin, Dallas. I think mm -hmm. if they start moving into those areas, they'll definitely see, uh, 
you'll start to see a lot more activity. But I know it's a, it's a it's a slow it's a slow moving thing. Um, but I mean I know well, just from revision path, but right. Right. But I think that we, we're getting to the point where enough of these efforts are coming together, you know, enough of these tributaries are coming together to create streams and rivers. And, and I think um, I think the growth, the growth is going to accelerate. And, and that's the growth in in the black design community sort of recognizing itself, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. Um, and at one point I, I did want to make to your earlier comments about the um, Andy Rutledge thing was uh, and, and just diversity in general i think the starting at the level of a national conference panel is is kind of like you know starting starting in the sky and, and building a building you know from the top down i think um it's very important just to have a grassroots awareness and activity and and build on that build up higher and higher and higher until uh, it, until it's a no-brainer to include you know, more blacks and minorities and, and females and whatnot into these conferences. Um, and I think that's what's happening right now. I mean, you know, you and I encounter one another through another group yeah. specifically for black designers. Right, this and is so, the, the Facebook group, uh, Black Designers United. United. Yeah, okay. Right. I'm trying to remember the day, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, I think we're, we're seeing the evidence of uh, these all of these people coming together. In fact, um, I was really, really happy to hear about your website. And one of the things that we're trying to do with um, with the Organization of Black Designers website is give a face, put a face to this design community. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's it's very, very early, but we're starting to get more and more people to to want to participate, you know, uh, signing up for a free uh, account, setting up a profile, uploading some work samples and beginning to have, you know, more of a presentation, more of a. Uh, a face, like right, I said. Right, Because I think with, uh, I, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the CNN Black in America 4 special they did about uh, African Americans in Silicon Valley. And yeah. they, they sort of focused on the new me accelerator started by Angela Benton. And then they had, you know, several black owned companies that were in that incubator. I think new me is now in its fourth or fifth year, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but right around the time when that special came out, then I started to see like this huge blacks in tech kind of surge where you had, yeah. you know, meetups, you had organizations like black girls code beginning, um, even at South by Southwest, there was an entire, I mean, South by Southwest this year, there was an entire blacks in tech content track with, you mm-hmm. know, all black panels speaking about, you know, Okay, so I'm gonna ask this question. I'd, I'd be very interested to get your your uh your take on this. So, blacks in tech, and I'm using air quotes here. When you hear that phrase, like just in terms of of what you see, like on Twitter and on Facebook and online, where people are talking about it, what sort of comes to mind for you when you think about that? Uh, that's a very good question. I'm really just coming to understand that there is this community out there called, you know, Blacks in Tech is a, a, a catchphrase, a term for them. And I would say that I understand that I need to be educated. And so my initial reaction, I, I don't want that to be, I don't want that to be the initial reaction of people when they hear Blacks in Tech. You know, uh-huh. I want to be proud to um, to identify myself with that group. So um, I would say I'm, I'm in the transition of, of really just understanding the landscape. So much of my attention has been fo- focused on, you know, Silicon Valley and startups in London. And inadvertently, what that means is my attention has been on non-black founded startup companies with, mm-hmm. you know, funding and investments from also non-blacks. And so uh, just, you know, 
I, I just I don't even have an opinion right now. It's like I, I need to understand what these these incubators and these uh, investment like what know, they're doing basically. Yeah, I, I just want to know, and it's almost well. I, mean, I would say it's definitely worth getting out and seeing. Like I went to uh, I went to Silicon Valley uh, in. Like November of 2011, that was that was sort of like a turning point for me. Uh-huh. Um, went to San Francisco, interviewed with some companies, really got to stick my head in the door and 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 put a face to the companies that I've been following, you know, on on the internet for so long. And and I think I need to do the same thing, really, to understand what's going on in, in sort of the blacks and tech movement. I hear you. I definitely hear because because for me, when I think about it, it I feel like that the term has gotten so conflated. That when I hear blacks in tech, I think black person with computer, which is <laughs> which is like super general because yeah. people that are sort of involved in, in this sort of blacks in tech umbrella, you know, they're uh, they're bloggers, they're writers, they're content creators, you know, video people. Um, but I haven't really seen many like designers, developers. Uh, I've seen some graphic artists, but you know what I mean? Like when I see these things, it seems to be more about a, a social movement and less about sort of this maker type movement that I see kind of coming out of Silicon Valley. I know that there was this big push maybe about last year or so, like learning how to code. Um, yeah. You know, people going to sites like Code Academy and Code School to sort of treehouse. learn the basics. Of, yeah, Treehouse, to like learn the basics of how to code. Uh, but now I see that being shifted more towards doing those efforts for uh, young children, like, right. you know, like STEM, like getting them interested in STEM fields. And, and, and that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that's bad. Uh, I, just, I know personally with Provision Path sort of being part of that, I want to see really more of that, that maker community because I, when I look at the design community and in general, when I look at the design community, it's a, a very white landscape. There's a few, you know, kind of flies in the buttermilk, uh, so to say, uh, that are, that are yeah. around, but not, not a lot. And I know that there are some out there. Uh, it's interesting, as I was prepping yeah. for this interview, I was listening to an old podcast called Let's Make Mistakes, uh, which, okay. is, which is, uh, it was on this, it's on this network called Five by Five. It's an old show. The show is, is gone now. And it was Mike Montero, who is the head of Mule Design. And I forget who his co-host is. It's a woman named Grace or something. But they had an early episode based off of a post that they had on their site that was like an open letter to conferences or something like that where they were talking about, you know, sort of racial diversity and gender diversity. And they had this whole episode where they talked about, you know, sort of how come there's not a greater amount of diversity in the field. And this was back in, I'd say, 2010. Right. Okay. And the main things that I kept hearing from that podcast was like, you know, you know, diversity, like reaching out, like it's so hard. It's a pain in the rear. It's too much work. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort, which, you know, it does take effort. You know, if you're going to do this outreach, I feel like those like the mainstream community reaches out to who they know, who just, you know, maybe someone sitting next to them. It might just be their general community of people they know that are in front of Retina MacBook Pros and drinking yeah. coffee that are able to sort of get the you know word out about stuff. Um, but then they say, you know, reaching out to other segments of the community is hard. And that was this is like a 2010 podcast. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's much easier now. Uh, because you've got like these blacks and tech organizations and meetups, you have New Me Accelerator, you have OBD, you have Revision Path, you have Black Girls Code, you have it's it's I think it's it's much easier now than it was even a few years ago to find well, black designers and find, you know, black creators. 
Well, I would say, to, to your point, I would say that there's, a, even outside of blacks and, and race in general and gender, there's a bigger movement in the tech world right now. And the bigger movement is between the creators, as you say, the makers and the consumers. Right. And you could say that we're all, it's imperative on all of us that we fight to maintain our control over technology so that technology does not control us. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's it's easy to say that it could go either way. Um, the the prevalence of touch devices unfortunately means that the fight is even harder because um, these devices are inherently made for the consumption of content and media and not for the creation of them. Right. Um, and so I would say that couched in this sort of greater um, uh, landscape of you know the division of creators and consumers, I think is okay. Well. How are blacks going to know about the fact that these these devices that they interact with and the software and sites that and the content they engage with were made by some people? What does that look like? How right. do they make this stuff? I think that um, it's it's imperative on all of us as individuals, and then if we take the responsibility as being um, tech savvy and connected blacks, we we better be making some efforts that that our own people, our own communities are also given these opportunities. And I think that, um, you know, I think there are, I think there are people doing that, but it's, it's hardly just a black problem. That's for sure. Right. And I, I think back on uh, Pew Research Center had this study uh, where they were talking about Twitter usage in 2012. And, you know, I know they were talking about how African-Americans use Twitter on a much higher, like per person basis than, uh, than the rest of the community uh, even when you think about black people and technology, we've always, I feel, been early adopters of technology. Uh, right. Even like when I think about like rap videos in the 90s, like I got my first two way from watching, you know, videos on Rap City. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like I feel like we've always been kind of ahead of the curve in consumption. In consumption, correct. Uh, but not necessarily with creation. And maybe we have been in creation. I, you know, as I do my research and I talk to people and I find out more, I find out we've been kind of on the forefront as well. But it's just about getting that story out so other people know. It's like you're saying they, you know, people may not necessarily know about these contributions and 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 things that we did. Like for example. Uh, and this is going to be coming up on the Facebook page probably in a few weeks or so. So you know all of uh, Spike Lee's movie posters, like Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, etc. All those okay. were done by a black guy named Art Sims. And okay. I didn't know that. they've been working together. I mean, they still work together. Like the last movie Spike did with uh, Red Hook Summer, he did the 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 um the poster for that. So they've been working together for 20, 25 something years. Okay. Didn't even know it until I started doing research and kind of found that out. And so, you know, as graphic artists, uh, you know, if you're an up and coming graphic artist, you may look at that and be like, wow, that's someone that I can I can emulate. But I didn't even know that. You know what I mean? It's like you can't know what you don't know. So when yeah. you have that information and you're able to to learn about it then you can do something about it, you have sort of that source of uh, of inspiration to kind of look towards. You see someone that looks like you doing what you want to do. I mean, I think I think that's a big part of it. However, when I think back to my own getting involved in computers, um, I didn't know any other black kids who were into computers until you know junior high school. But um, the computer itself was such an interesting and fascinating mystery that that's what compelled me to learn more about it. And uh-huh. I think that technology has still has the capacity to inspire, you know, imagination. We just need some help. And I, again, I don't know if that's a black problem because, you know, the the biggest companies that produce the, the most 
devices that we engage with, they're not they're a lot of the value that they that they have for themselves is yeah. is built on enabling a small percentage of the user base to gain a limited set of knowledge and then monetize that access that they have to that knowledge. It's okay. Well, if you're an iOS developer, you paid a little bit of money or whatever to get started and get licensed, but you've invested in an entirely separate skill set from the consumers of your product. The Mm -hmm. consumers of your product have no concept, no concept of what goes on on the other side of that glass, none whatsoever. And so this relatively small number of, of users who understand the, the goings-on and the inner workings of the device and the systems and services in, in general, they monetize that knowledge that they have against the greater populace. Uh-huh. And so the reason Apple has the market cap it has is because they're not developing, they're not selling 100 million developer kits, they're selling 100 million consumption devices. Right. And they're empowering, they're empowering a few thousand developers to monetize the knowledge that they have. So a lot of these companies, they're built on a small number or a small percentage of the the greater populace understanding the technology that they're making. And in fact, there has to be barriers of entry. There have to be learning curves. There have to be these barriers. Otherwise, if, if Apple taught everybody how to make apps for iPhones and iPads, how would there be a market for apps for <laughs> iPhones and iPads? That's true. That's very true. So, so I think that Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft—you know—they they make great products and these are great companies and whatnot. But it's not—it's not their imperative to teach us that these devices and experiences that we're having are made by people just like us, white or black, who have no less or more common sense or wisdom or education or intelligence than we do. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like if you can play Angry Birds and and beat Angry Birds, you probably have a comparable intelligence as the people who made it. So, you know, why aren't you making Angry Birds, why don't you know that 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 whole side of the world exists? Right. And it's it's because, hey, uh, how does Apple and Microsoft and Google keep their their market caps? They don't do it by teaching everyone and empowering everyone to understand and control technology. They do it by empowering a small number of people. So, like I said, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of long winded. So sorry if I just. No, no, no. That's that's, that's <laughs> no. Keep going. Keep so going. I would say that, you know, it's, it's really imperative then. You, know, you and I, uh, if we just start here, you and I, because we are aware of the fact that all of this stuff has to be made by somebody to make that the mission, make that the focus and the core of our message whenever we communicate. It's it's about getting black designers together and it's about inspiring, but it's also about, hey, the, the, the most transformative technology or creation of mankind ever was the internet. Did you know that people just made the internet? People just decided that this is the way things are going to be and every cycle till it changes like you know that that should definitely be what we teach people i wholeheartedly agree with all of that that is yeah you're you're absolutely right i think also that when i think about um how companies will start to diversify or or, you know as you're saying kind of let more people know like i think that problem will be fixed once these businesses realize that there's money being left on the table by not serving you know for example these other communities like for example when we think about smartphones and things that's a relatively kind of you know western based i don't want to say innovation but i feel like that's the the right term for it like yes the devices are are you know made in japan made in china and there's a lot of consumption here in the united states and there's consumption of course in europe south america but i think about like africa as a whole like several countries several different tongues and you think about mobile technology there it's not about smartphones you know 
it's about what what we call like feature phones, like you know flip phones or, or you know what have you, and about how to yeah. use mobile networks, you know, within the continent. So there are things that are going on in in Africa along mobile technology that are like completely different from what's happening in the United States. Um, and a lot of those companies, I don't think, have been able to penetrate that. They haven't been yeah. able to sort of figure out the Rubik's cube of Africa, so to speak, in terms of how do they kind of get, uh, how do they establish a marketplace there? Like maybe they're able to do it in, in larger cities like, you know, Johannesburg or Nairobi or Cairo, for example, and in, in, you know, different countries. But as a whole, like that's a big, that's a, I think for them, I think they look at Africa like this, it's this big nut that they have to crack to figure out how they can sort of, you know, figure it grow. out. Yeah. They have and, to grow. And, and there's, there's maker spaces that are in, in, uh, I know in Kenya, there's iHub. I think iHub oh, okay. is in Nairobi. There is another, um, kind of incubator called Akira Chicks, AK, like nice. Akira, like the, the anime and then Chicks, C-H-I-X, which I don't remember where they are, uh, Akira Chicks. But I mean, these are just like two places in the entire. Oh, Akira Chicks is in Kenya too. But it's okay. two types of things in this huge continent with all these countries and languages. There's so many other untold stories and things that are that are happening. Which you know, I I mean, for me, I have this kind of personal thing of wanting to to talk more about tech that's going on in Africa. Like, what are 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 Africans doing in Africa with technology? for themselves and for their people. Like I have a, that's a yeah. big focus of mine, which, and that's I hope, very interesting. and I hope for a revision path that I'm able to, to, you know, talk to people that are there so I can really get a, an idea and a sense like back in maybe 2007, 2008, uh, maybe earlier than that, I believe I was writing for black web 2.0 and I would okay. always write about, you know, kind of technology in Africa about, you know, sort of what's going on in, in South Africa, what's going on in, uh, Durban, which is also in South Africa, but it's one of the big kind of tech centers in Africa, Durban, Nairobi. Um, but, you know, there's a whole, there's a lot of other countries. There's so much other things. I think when the the Western lens of Africa that we see is always like about war and poverty. But, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that's going on in Africa, particularly yeah. around technology. And I have a, a really keen interest in in shining a light on it so people know about it. And ways that we can, Wonderful. you know, that we can, you know, help them and how they can help us. Um, right. There was something I posted. I think it was to black designers, the the Facebook group that we're talking about, uh, about this kid named Kevin Karanja that created yeah. an African font, like based off of glyphs from his language. Like it's a, it's a Roman font, but it's based off of African letter forms and glyphs, uh, which, I mean, I find that to be astonishing. Like it's the same kind of work that, that, was great. that Safi... Uh, God, what's his, what's his last name? Safi Info, Safi Mfundikwa, I think is his last name. Mfundikwa, um, has this whole kind of movement around, uh, African typography in Zimbabwe. And he started like this, this design school in Zimbabwe about it. Like, but this is just like one man in one country in this entire continent, right? Like it's, it's this one story, but there's probably, you know, dozens of other, I'm getting, now I'm getting long winded, but you know what I mean? I just, in terms of, I, I appreciate of, it. This of, like, is stuff I don't know. But I mean, just in terms of like shining that light on, on, you know, what people in Africa are doing around technology and design that is just being, I feel ignored by the rest of the design community. And yeah, there's this thing about, you know, oh, it takes a little work. And it I, I admit it takes work. 
Um, but the work is not as hard as I think it's made out to be. And I can, and I'm saying that just based on when I have to, when I try to find designers for revision path to interview, it's actually pretty yeah. easy. And I don't know <laughs> if I have like special black research powers or whatever, but I'm, I mean, I'm able to go on LinkedIn and if I spend maybe an hour on LinkedIn, I can find 25 people and I don't have some premium account. I've got the free account. It's, yeah. it's not that hard. It's not, it's really not that hard. So I think the people, the people who say it's, it's hard are protecting something. Um, you know, they're protecting something that's comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. And I agree with comfort. That. Comfort is not anything that I've been, <laughs> you know, it, it comfort isn't something that I've gotten attached to. So yeah, I think it's an advantage. Yeah. And I, and I'll tell you right now, and this will probably change. I think by the time the interview comes out, but I am sitting on, I've contacted so far over 100 designers and developers. I'm sitting on a list of over 200 that I still haven't reached out to. And these That's are awesome. and these are people that are most of them are in the US, but there's a good bit that are uh in Africa. There's I think one or two that are in Germany. Um so like I'm reaching out to my personal network of people I know that are to to find people. Um but also just most of the people I found have been on LinkedIn and they're not hard to find. So this, 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 uh, right. This myth of the work being too hard and being a pain in the rear, I feel is, is ridiculous. It's pretty easy. So my hope, <laughs> my hope is to be able to go through this list and talk about every person's story and what they're doing. And these are people that are, some of them are students that are just starting out. Some of them are, are, you know, like mid-level professionals. Some of them own their own, you know, like design firms that are doing like big, huge campaigns. So this is like, the, it spans the gamut. And I just want to, you know, tell their story. I want to give them that opportunity to tell their story. Do it, man. Do it. So this is a, <laughs> this has been a long interview, but uh, where can our readers uh, or listeners, I guess, to this podcast, where can they find out more about you online? Uh, I do have a, um, uh, a website at mauricewingfield.com. I don't really do much there, um, but that's a place. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Creation Soup. Creation Soup, like S-O-U-P? Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. And um, obd.org. obd.org. Well, I know I'll definitely be checking more out about that and finding ways to, to get involved, but thank you so much for taking time out of your day for this interview. It has been it has been really great. It's been insightful. It's been knowledgeable. I hope that the people that are listening uh, have gotten as much out of it as I think we've both given to it. So I just thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate this as well, man. You're doing good work. Please, Thanks. please keep it up. Thanks, man. You too. You too. All right. All right. And that about wraps it up for this week. Thank you again so, so much for tuning into the Revision Path podcast. Uh, we'll be announcing the new regular weekly podcast schedule soon so uh, keep an eye out for that we'll definitely announce it on the website as well as on our facebook and twitter profiles um, also if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast there'll be information in the show notes you can either sponsor per episode or sponsor the podcast exclusively just contact us and we'll make it happen uh, like i said before don't forget to check us out on facebook and twitter just search for revision path or sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can do that on our Facebook page as well as on the Revision Path website. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, peace.